The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. This is a dark time of the year, and the veil between this world and others is at its most diaphanous, and only a gentle push would be needed by a malevolent mind to unleash chaos upon the world. Ah, but what a joke it would be. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and dead dwarf, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Our presentation tonight is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, 1983 horror co-written and produced by John Carpenter, and my guest is specialist historian Chris Arnsby. You join us floating in the realm of oblivion, near Catford. Hello, Chris. Hello. Now, it's horror month. Listener, you can't see all the scary gestures I'm doing at Chris. It is terrifying. But it's a bit of a a crossover this week, because last month it was all about places I'd been, things I'd seen on my summer expedition all over the world. And one of the places I went, where I actually went, was Switzerland, where I saw no less than John Carpenter, the great horror filmmaker and composer in concert playing with his band I got to see all the great classics of his filmography um, Halloween Escape from New York The Thing which he didn't write the music for but he still played the music Mm. for it (laughs) Uh, Prince of Darkness In the Mouth of Madness all played live and it was absolutely fantastic I loved it but there was one thing that I wish he had played, and that's the music from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yeah, so it didn't, didn't wait to mention at all, then? Mm. No, it didn't. And I can understand why, because he only played music from films he directed. Mm. And apart from The Thing, it was music that he had written himself. Yeah. He made an exception for The Thing, because it's Ennio Morricone, the great Ennio Morricone. And he said, you know, because it was, because it was so great. And it feels like Carpenter's music. Yeah. But Halloween 3 is, by every metric, an odd duck. <laughs> yes. Had you seen it before? No. and I was trying to work out why, because I do like John Carpenter. I've, I've seen most of his or at least what could be considered to be you know the classics the peak you know so yeah so Dark Star Assault on Precinct 13 you know Halloween um, The Fog yes yeah, New York The Thing Christine yeah. Starman Big Trouble in the Little yeah, China yeah yeah uh, Prince of Darkness they yeah, live that's when was of an invisible man <laughs> did Prince of Darkness come before they live yes I didn't know that I was a super because a bit like with a bit like with Woody Allen, there is a sense that he has a peak in his career and then a gradual turning off. Yes. And because 
I think that They Live is more enjoyable than Prince of Darkness, I would have sort of swapped those round. So I'm just slightly surprised to find out they, they came in that order. I think that they're both really terrific movies, but they're very, very different. Yeah. Um, I would actually say, because last night I watched Big Trouble in Little China on Blu-ray, and I'd forgotten how funny it is. It is by far Carpenter's funniest movie, and it's a, it is, for the most part, a flat-out comedy. Mm. But with action and visual effects and really clever disrupting of action movie cliches and where well, the main character is actually the idiot comic relief. Yes, yeah. And it's a really funny movie. And then a year later, he does Prince of Darkness, mm. which is a very serious weird dreamlike horror movie which is heavily inspired by um one of his he, well heroes one of his greatest inspirations it's inspired by one of his inspirations yeah, well, yeah that, well, seemed, that I, seems logical yeah yeah uh, nigel neal the script for prince of darkness he wrote under the pseudonym martin quatermass oh yes he did and yeah. nigel that didn't go down very well i don't think did it well nigel neal well, to explain who he is, he was a BBC scriptwriter mm. in the early 1950s. He wrote the very first original science fiction series for adults. Uh, it was actually, I think, the first original drama serial for yeah. television ever, The Quatermass Experiment. A huge hit in its day, though maybe as many as 10,000 viewers. <laughs> yes. um, but sadly, it was, it was performed live... And the quality of the recordings of the first two episodes was felt to be so poor that they didn't bother recording mm. the rest. So there was never any copy of them. Um, but it was a huge hit. There was two follow-up serials made, and Neil was inundated with work. He was became the first of great television dramatists yeah, in the yeah. UK, specifically working in speculative fiction. I mean, he wrote a lot of um, sort of straight drama in many senses, but much of it seemed to be more the leaning towards the more fantastical. Yeah. He did a celebrated version of 1984, um, a uh, Christmas ghost story in 1972 called The Stone Tape, mm. um, which offered a scientific explanation for ghosts, which I think, well, it might be my imagination, but I vaguely remember it being taken seriously as a possible... Yeah, I the, the, the idea that um, the traumatic events of, are in some way imprinted on their surroundings, mm. and a, ho a ghost is in fact like a playback of this pre of this terrible past event. I suppose without knowing the order, whether that is it is it scientifically plausible? Yeah, or whether, or whether he picked up the theory and turned it into drama, or whether the drama came first and somebody went, "Oh, that sounds like it." Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. He did in the sixties. Among the things that the BBC threw into the incinerator was a play he did called The Road, which I would... If anybody's got a copy of it, I would love to see it. But equally, the frustrating thing when BBC Four, in the last a few years ago, was experimenting with live drama, that, to me, was the obvious one that they could have done. Rather uh, than an, an, a remake of the Quatermass Yeah, or a friend. I think they did Andromeda as well. They did a... They did uh, a friend Robert, which was a, a, another serial song by mm. uh, by another writer, by, by Fred. Was it Fred Hoyle working on his own? It was. I think one of them was Fred Hoyle and a co-writer, and the other one might have been Fred Hoyle by himself. Yeah. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Fred Hoyle 
was the first. He he coined the theory of the black hole. No, the Big Bang. Oh, the Big he, Bang. He, he, right. Yeah, yeah. He when when the big the, the theory of the Big Bang was first proposed, he came up with the name as a way of demonstrating his contempt for the theory. Ah. Uh, and I, I guess wasn't best pleased when it caught on. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't have the advertiser's mindset. It was no. too snappy. Yeah, that's right. Um, but um, Neil continued to have mm. uh, remains successful. I think for. The rest of his career, Into, he always seemed to yeah. uh, get. Pro- I mean, there were some projects that he never managed to cut off the ground. One in particular, which apparently had it was it's been suggested had some kind of connection to Halloween Three, and that was one called the Big Big Giggle, oh, yeah, which, which was never oh. produced, and it supposedly revolved around a television signal that could provoke people to commit suicide. Having looked into this, because it sounds like yeah. a brilliant idea, but obviously completely unfilmable for television, because mm. you know someone's going to kill themselves. By the law of average, yeah, yeah. that's going to happen. And you know someone with an agenda against the BBC. Not that I'm suggesting any tabloids hate the BBC. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Would use that as, a stick, to be, as yeah. a stick to beat the BBC with. But apparently it was more to do with suicide becoming the latest teenage craze oh yeah this does ring a bell now yeah and it really points to something that becomes quite obvious in some of Neil's later writing that he really hates young people yeah well, <laughs> that he really is the most curmudgeonly yeah re- reactionary sounds unfair but no, just there, grumpy there is a sense that he is one of these people that would just sit there and go modern life is rubbish uh, and that particularly as you hit into the seven, you hit stuff like and a lot of his stuff is available on DVD, which is great. Yeah. So the year of the Sex Olympics is television is awful. I believe that's not available on DVD anymore. Isn't it? Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> um, and but, then, but year, year of the Sex Olympics invents reality television. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he invented the television serial drama. He invented reality television in criticising it as the, the lowest mm. level of um, broadcasting, as the most nakedly the, the most naked attempt to provoke a reaction from the audience and to yeah. get people to watch it is one it is one of these things that you watch it and, and, and it seems astonishing I mean for something that I think went out in the late 60s it's a yeah. very very good piece of television and he did uh, a series called Beasts and on, one of the episodes of that is called During Barty's Party which in theory, is about a couple who are in, about to be devoured by rats, but really is about how awful radio DJs are. <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, he never he never misses an opportunity to have a go at things that have annoyed him yeah. while he's been sitting at his typewriter trying to think of something to write about. Quatermass four, which is hippies well, yeah, with yeah. plum bobs. Well, having and... having done three Quatermass series for the BBC in the sixties, he tried to revive it in the sorry in the early fifties. He tried to revive it ten years later with a new story about um, these hippies and their long mm. hair and their rock and roll music, and alien, the alien, uh, aliens of some sort. Yeah, and stone circles. And stone is... circles, which uh, it's always about ancient force, mm. ancient and unknowable forces, are a recurring theme in Neil's work, and it was shut down by the BBC because it was apparently just not really workable. Oh, yeah, they couldn't. Have. I mean, interest. Or he was just being too difficult. Possibly. I mean, interestingly, they, they seem to have done some pre-filming on it because there are... There are some model sh- yeah, yeah, material that Yeah, was model shot. shots, yeah. Um, but it, it was eventually made ten years later by ITV 
And ironically, this is still then delayed because ITV went on strike. Yes, yeah. But yeah, it was shown in late 1979, and it's about these bloody hippies. Wandering all over your garden and chanting, yes. Yeah, it's, it really does look like just angry old man hmm. railing at the modern world. Apparently. But it's still, even then, if you, if you can get past this, this, oh, this yeah. grumpy stuff, it's actually a really, really well-written yeah quite frightening story as yeah. they, there's a shift in format from six half hours to four hour long episodes with mm. adverts and John Mills plays Quatermass yeah. oh, and he's terrific and it's an incredibly lavish production yeah I mean it's unless you've actually got it on your shelf there no absolutely <laughs> because it's because it is really good and it's civilization is collapsing and it's a very very nice example of sort of it's a British apocalypse. Uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 it's uh, that's the thing. It's I suppose it's not even the apocalypse. It's just that civilization is grinding down and kind of running out of steam. And there's, and there's not there's no specific cause. Mm. It's just we've peaked and yeah. now things are just sliding towards catastrophe. Yeah, and some alien power of some sort is making things worse. Yeah. And yeah, I, somebody. I mean, it's not. I did. That they released it uh, as a film version as well. Yeah, uh, and quite I did. Nice conclusion. I did suggest it as a possible candidate for for Cinema Limbo, but uh, and I said no because it's a it's a re-edit of a yeah, TV series, so it doesn't really count. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, there is an argument, I think, for covering Quatermass in some depth in some other form because hmm. it everything starts with all television drama pretty much, in the UK at least, can be traced back to Quatermass yeah. and Nigel Neal. His influence is incalculable. Yeah, oh definitely, yeah, he casts a very, very long shadow. And he was also married to Judith Carr, who wrote the Mog books. No way. Yep. <laughs> so that, you go from this sort of grumpy, curmudgeonly man to a woman who wrote these lovely stories about a cat that you just want to cuddle. I, I mean, I'm in a bit, I am a cat person. And I, I I live with a cat, who, uh, and and we love each other very much in a normal way. Well, and I see a lot of Mog in him. <laughs> I don't think I can think of a, a greater mismatch. I once went to you can go around Ernest Hemingway's house in Key West, and Ernest Hemingway, the you know, this hard drinking, hard fighting, terribly macho writer, who loved cats. And so you walk around this house, and there's all these pictures of Ernest Hemingway cuddling cats and. Making kissy faces, and it's just this mismatch. Between. In some ways, I could I can see the connection there because cats are very independent; mm. they know their own minds. So I can imagine that he would have an affinity for them. But if he's there, sort of cuddling up, yeah. thinking, oh, oh, Mister Dickles, how are you? No, that's just weird. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not like that with my cat. But yeah, I say he's not mine. He belongs to my landlord, but he. He spends a lot of time with me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not here to judge you. When I left the house this morning, he followed me. <laughs> I had to go back and look inside. Right. But a couple of years after the last Quatermass serial, mm. Neil was now working in Hollywood because some of the directors working now had grown up seeing the film versions of the Quatermass movies that had come out in the 50s and 60s. And he was working with John Landis on a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And John Carpenter was also working on the Halloween movies. Now, the f- first two Halloween movies are uh, a matched pair, effectively. They tell a single contained story of the psychotic murderer Michael Myers, escapes from lunatic asylum, runs around with knife, stab, yeah. 
knife. It's a it's a, as as they as I think it's been referred to, it, they are knife movies. Yeah, and Halloween three is a pod movie. Um, invasion of the body snatchers. Oh, I see. Yes, yeah. Good. And again, the, the, the closer you look at it, you realise this has nothing to do with invasion of the body snatchers. But that's how they kept talking about it. And I keep hearing people talking about invasion of the body snatchers, and there's not that much of a connection. No, I think the. I, as is inevitable with these things I looked it up on Wikipedia because where else do you go to look stuff up these days it mentions that the town in Halloween 3 is named after the town in the 57 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers yes and that's meant to be a tribute for reasons that I can't remember oh no it's sort of a little tip of the hat yeah yeah that's quite nice but apart from that there is a, there's a sequence where someone gets replaced by a robot oh, version yes, of stuff yeah, but a... apart from that there's very little there maybe the ending yeah, that I suppose of, that kind of sort of inconclusive, maybe downbeat, that sort of bleak seventies stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there had, in fact, I mean, there'd been a version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers only a few years earlier, mm. which moved to San Francisco and is one of those horror movies, one of those remakes rather, that's noticeably better than mm. the original. The seventy-eight, have you you've seen it? I have. Yeah, yeah. Not for a long time, but I remember thinking it was really good. It's a very, very good film, and very, very scary in a way that's quite hard to put your finger <laughs> on. Um, but with Halloween 2 ends with Donald Pleasance as the uh, heroic psychiatrist blowing himself and Michael Myers up. Spoilers, but Halloween 2 isn't very good. <laughs> oh, um, I actually haven't seen Halloween 2. <laughs> it's not very good. No, it's fine. One of my favourite stories about it is um, Carpenter came up with the idea that the reason why Michael Myers is chasing around after Jamie Lee Curtis's character is that it turns out he's actually her brother. Right. And Carpenter admitted that he came up with this idea at two in the morning after drinking a six-pack of beer because mm. he was stuck. Fair <laughs> enough. And this is the hook on which the rest of the entire Halloween franchise has been hung. There's one thing that he came up with when he was plastered because there was nothing else he could think of to write about. So with Halloween 2 tying everything up, it did a pretty good job at the box office. And Carpenter had the idea of relaunching the movie relaunching the Halloween series as an anthology mm. that every year or every couple of years in October there would be a new Halloween movie and it would be a new completely original completely separate horror story in some way connected to the season of Halloween and the first of these was going to be Halloween 3 season of the witch so who do you talk to when you want a, a scary story in a contemporary setting and you can talk to him you talk to Nigel Neal. Yeah, absolutely. And they got a script out of him, and they rewrote the script, and they put in some gore and some sex, and Nigel Neal didn't like that very much. <laughs> and he felt that his original material had been too heavily diluted, so he took his name off it. And as a result, the film is credited as being written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Carpenter's name isn't on the script either. But uh, he worked with Wallace, who was his art director on the previous oh, Halloween Oh, OK, movies. that makes sense. Actually, I should say, Carpenter only directed the first Halloween film. The second one was Rick Rosenthal. Right. Who would later come back and direct Halloween Resurrection, the eighth one, which is also the worst. I think, going, going back to what we were talking about before, I think this may be one of the reasons why I never bothered with Halloween 3, was that I, was, I, I felt I was more of a fan of John Carpenter. And so... And, and Halloween 2 and Halloween 3 kind of looked more like that attempt to start a franchise in the same way as the sort of the Friday the 13th films or something. So 
I don't know. They, they just kind of passed me by. Actually. Halloween three does feel like a John Carpenter movie. Mm. Does, oh yeah, like, definitely. Like Poltergeist, which definitely wasn't directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Halloween three feels like it definitely wasn't directed by John Carpenter. Certainly not. No, definitely no. not. Even though it looks and sounds exactly like one. The opening titles. Now, the other thing that I want to mention, one of my favourite, possibly my favourite other film podcast, How Did This Get Made? There's an episode on Halloween 3 a few years ago. Yes, they did, didn't they? And I was fuming. (laughs) Because, I mean, it's it's a comedy podcast and they're comedians, so obviously they're going to crack jokes all the way through. But I did feel like they were either missing the point or not paying attention. Mm. And there was a lot of things where they didn't seem to understand what they were watching. I, I, I ne- and they're not stupid people. No, no. They're very talented people. I nearly went back and listened to that in advance of this, but I didn't want to end up going over the same ground. So if I do end up touching on the same stuff, it's, it's coincidence. But I probably will go back and listen to it now, having seen the film. But my memory of it was that they didn't, they didn't seem to understand the plot at all. They had a big problem with the fact that Michael Myers isn't in the movie. Yeah. And that's the problem that everyone seems to have, that it's it's not another Michael Myers movie. It's not a knife film. I suppose so, whereas I went into it at least knowing that. So that bit didn't throw me. Um, and so I'm getting a feeling that you didn't like the movie. No, no. I, 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 Which is fine, if you've got a good reason. It's not that I didn't... Don't go all Ghostbusters on me. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, these women, they're touching my things. Yeah, yeah. And not in a good way. And if you didn't like the new Ghostbusters movie for a good reason, if you found it unfunny or that the plot was I, a bit too I, flabby, when it kind of was, that's fine. But have a good reason for not yeah, liking it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it. I thought the trailers made it look like it was going to be terrible. The trailers are pretty bad. Yeah. It was a very poorly marketed film. I keep talking about the Ghostbusters remake, and I know yeah. they're probably getting quite bored of me by now. Oh, really? But, um, but with how, with how this got made's episode on Halloween mm. three, they do note they don't seem to understand the opening titles. No, and it's pretty clear I, what's going on. That it's it's this uh, electronic yeah, mind building up very very slowly, and we eventually see it's an electronic TV image yeah. of a jack o' lantern, and then it starts flashing. And that we see in context. Yeah. Oh, it's them creating this thing that's going to cause chaos. Yeah. And it's almost exactly like the opening titles of Stranger Things, this new Netflix series, <laughs> which is massively paying homage to 80s mm. sci-fi and horror movies and adventure films like The Goonies. And the opening titles are exactly the same. It's okay. these weird shapes moving around, and we eventually see it's forming the title. I'm fa- it's really odd that they had a problem, because if nothing else... They're titles, so you know, you the title the, the the titles to films frequently are just abstract. Or I, I'm, I'm kind of it's going to be interesting to go back and listen to it now, just to hear that they got hung up on that. Because if you look at something like uh, struggling to think of a good example now, um, something like Casino Royale, which is ter- the the David the good Niven, oh the original one, yeah, you know, it's terribly it's terribly sort of late six. It's very animated. Mm. Um, it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's fun to watch, but it doesn't necessarily. The film doesn't necessarily. Or well, the Pink Panther films, where you've got an animated Pink Panther wandering around. I'm, I'm just that's, yeah, that's a, it's a very poor indication of what the film's going to. Yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just. It's just weird to hear that they kind of got hung up on. 
I, I just saw it, and yeah, it's fine. Okay, it, it it's not necessarily obvious that it's built. It's a t- it's the, the lines on a TV screen building up, but it's it's fine. It's but it abstract becomes, electronic. It becomes thing. clear as, as yeah, it, yeah, as it absolutely. Comes and um, we also have the fantastically moody opening music. Hmm. And actually, the nice thing is that they've made some effort as well, so that when you get the sort of high pitched synthesizer noises, you'll get different patterns of lines and things. Yeah, it's 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 really it's a really nice little sequence. Hmm. It, I did, I did like the film. I, I, it's possible I might end up sounding a bit lukewarm about it, but what possibly one problem is that the t- because the titles are kind of shot on, I think it's film of a video screen, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of makes it look a bit cheap, and that's maybe not what you want as the very first image of the film. Yeah. Because you only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the the opening scene of the movie, I've written down here as a note, cinema in microcosm, because it's a man at night running from a car being chased. And it's for that... That's like Carpenter's movies mm. in Michael. So it's beautifully filmed at night. There's these beams of light. Someone's running around. They look terrified. Why? What's going on? And it sort of immediately grabs you. Mm. What's What's happening? Why is Why is all this happening? I've I've talked before about um, the William Goldman books uh, where he wrote Which Lie Did I Tell and um, Adventures in Screenwriting. Adventures in Screenwriting. Yeah. In one of them, I can't remember which one. He criticises that kind of opening. He gives an example, he, he makes up his own example of a woman running through a forest and she's being chased by a shadowy figure. His dislike of that is that it's, he feels it's a t- It's the opening to like the X, he doesn't reference the X-Files, but it's TV. You know, it's quick, we need to grab people's attention before the first commercial break. And he feels that because film is a slower-paced medium, you can afford to tease people a little bit more. But it's... No, it's it's very well shot, and I quite liked it. But that was kind of what I thought of was that it's it's William Goldman's example of of a t- of a film opening with the atmosphere of a TV program. Well, in my own writing, <laughs> let's talk about me. Yeah, it's something that I bear in mind, and I always try and have a a punchy opening scene. And now that I think of it, I thought, yeah they could always lead into the title sequence of something. Yeah. But I thought, this is how you immediately get an audience's attention. Yeah. You you can't really afford to trust that they're going to stay in their seats. And actually, I mean, it's interesting because when he talks about the writing of uh, All the President's Men, he's talking about adapting the story of Watergate. He, that's kind of the, the, he wrote an opening that I think wasn't used, but he kind of did that TV opening kind of thing, that attention-grabbing thing, in that he deliberately started with the most obvious, clichéd images that he could think of. So he starts with a shot of the Washington... He scripts a, a shot of the Washington Monument with the idea that the audience will sit there and go, oh, God, we've come to watch this film about Nixon, and they've started... You know, we know it's set in Washington. Followed up with a shot of the Watergate Centre. Followed it up with a shot of people coming up to the side door and using the set of keys to get in except that at that point they've got the wrong set of keys. And the idea was to wrong-foot the audience and make them go, oh, we had better pay attention to this because there's obviously stuff we didn't know about. So he's not necessarily against 
grabbing people's attention. It's just interesting that I'd, I'd read that, and, I, and then Halloween 3 starts, and it's an example of something that he considers to be a TV opening. Mm. Well, of course, it's a close-up on a TV screen. So well, yeah, this is true. Like deliberately trying to poke him in the eye. Yeah, quite possibly, <laughs> yeah. What, do we know what, what, what Roger Ebert frequently mentioned on this podcast? What did he think of Halloween 3? I don't think he was terribly impressed. <laughs> I don't recall exactly, but I can imagine that he... I, I think he had given Halloween, the first film, a very good review. Mm. Um, but I can imagine that... I mean, the second one is really quite ropey. That's a shame. And after that, he, I can imagine many critics who might have had a mind to be supportive yeah. would be a bit more dismissive. And I can understand why. Mm. But yes, sorry, I've, I've kind of led us uh, off track a little bit. But yeah, run, run it, Terrified Running Man. Terrified Running Man. He um, flees into a car lot and is attacked by a suited figure. Um, but he manages to crush him un- between two cars. Mm. And he doesn't... It's oddly robotic, one might almost say, this suit-wearing man. Uh, he doesn't even cry out. And then there's a caption, one hour later. Yeah, actually, that was... really clumsy. That was the... Th- I think that was something that did bother me about the opening minutes is they're obsessed with telling you every so I think the shot of the running man opens with a caption doesn't yes, it and tells o- you October 23rd and then it tells you and then I think it also goes on to tell you how many days it is till Halloween or something or it's did, not there's not an on-screen caption oh, okay. but there is the song we'll, we'll come to the song in a bit but uh, but yeah but it's the one hour later yes yeah. you don't it's completely unnecessary yeah I, I'm aware of the concept of passage of time at a petrol station, the man suddenly appears and uh, uh, collapses as the attendant is watching a news report about mm. how one of the monoliths has been stolen from Stonehenge. Or not even that it's been stolen, that it was stolen six months ago and police still don't know where it is. They've been, <sighs> they've been putting fingerprint powder all over the grass... Yeah. They've been interviewing the army at uh, devices at the other end of Salisbury Plain. Yeah. Um, the, the solstice worshippers are all annoyed. Searched. All those, all those. Yeah, they've been they've been searched for a twelve foot lump of rock. And and again, I don't. It's unfortunate that in the first five minutes you get an opening sequence that's int- visually interesting but looks a bit cheap. Some clumsy use of captions, and then. A shoehorned in very ex- clearly exposition. Yeah, it's just kind of unfortunate that the, the film is kind of front loaded with stuff that makes that kind of takes the edge off it a little bit. But it does, it does get better. But it's there's a lot of stuff that comes quite quickly, and I can kind of see how people might have just switched off at that point a little bit. That's that's the thing. When you're starting a movie like this, you need to tease it. Mm. You don't front load exposition. Say, there's a man. He's scared. He's fleeing from these people. When one of them is killed, he doesn't seem to react. We don't need the news story. No. We don't need the captions. Oh, and then he gets to the petrol station and the attendant finds him and takes him to the hospital. Yeah. That's all he could just turn up at the hospital. Yeah, I mean, yeah. In, 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 sort of in thinking about the later events of the movie, that might not necessarily work, but I because think... it, the, the hospital's just too far away and he's on foot. Yeah. But no, keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. Remember who the movie is for. Who's the audience going to be for a horror movie? It's not going to be people who want to see Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> no, this is true. I like Lawrence of Arabia. Even though it doesn't have any women in it. 
also the, as the man collapses, he says, they're coming, they're coming, which is very invasion of the body snatchers. It's, a, mm. it's a taking bits, but it's using them in yeah, a different yeah. context. So, meanwhile, Dan Chalice, Dr. Dan Chalice, yes. arrives at his ex-wife's house, having brought Halloween masks for his kids. Now, he is rarely seen without a drink in his hand. Yeah. But it's never kind of... Ref- it's never it's never really... anything odd. No. It's as if he's a chain smoker. Yeah. But he's actually a chain drinker. Yeah. I think his wife makes kind of a throwaway comment, something about... Because he's late, and I can't remember... But I think his wife kind of brushes past it and just kind of refers to it in passing. But no, I mean, the, the impression I kind of got is the, the guy's a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. It's just never really addressed in the film. And he's... He's called into the... Well, his, his wife has already bought masks. Mm. He's bought these fancy silver shamrock masks while he gets a call and is brought into the hospital. So, now this is this is another how this get made pick up on. And I thought, well, clearly he's on call. Yeah. Because you're allowed to be away from the hospital under certain circumstances, I think. Yeah, absolutely. If you're on call. Yeah. But you have to go straight back. And it's a tiny little hospital in the middle of nowhere, mm. so they're not likely to have that many patients. But he, it's, it's, the, it's the guy. And as they're wheeling him around, one of the Silver Shamrock commercials comes on. And he reacts to it. Oh, and they're, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill all of us. And that's a really nicely staged shot, although it's possibly a little bit show-offy. In the, it, it, the, the camera's down. He's on a trolley. He's in the foreground. The TV's in the background. And they shift focus, don't they? So that at it's, first the TV's out of focus, and he's, he's sharp. And then they, they switch it around so that the TV... It's a focus pull. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. It's just it's uh, just a really nice way of doing it, and it's much, much subtler than a lot of the other stuff we've heard. You, the one thing you have skipped past, of course, is the first time that the Silver Shamrock commercial oh, yeah. comes on, and the kids put the masks on and start wearing... And that's, that's quite creepy. They immediately put the masks on. And start and waving their hands and singing the commercial. And it's, it's a nice little creepy moment. Now, I can imagine that Nigel Neal did not like commercial jingles no and I think this is one of the I th- because this fits in with Nigel Neal's more modern life is rubbish thing mm. and yeah I, I, I would be willing to bet that this is one of the things that's imported straight from the apparently the Stonehenge stuff was put in after he left really yeah that's not him which is really odd yeah because it's the thing that's most obviously him yeah yeah it's stone circles it's ancient powers yeah I'm surprised about that and the other thing of course that Nigel Neal never wrote for Doctor Who, although I think they asked him. They asked him, and he said no because he didn't work right for children's. Television. Yeah, and also I think he was slightly offended by the idea of making horror, um, make us like scary for kids. I think he felt that was a little bit inappropriate. So it's interesting that again, one of the things he's criticising in this film is the marketing of, of marketing. sort of horror horror produce to kids. And I don't know again whether that's just a coincidence or if it if it's him, then it's. It fits clearly with his mm. worldview. If it's not, then I think it's very probably Carpenter's own yeah, thinking. Be. Well, this is how this would work. So he clearly thinks, well, stone circles. I because he knows Neil's words. Yeah, stone circles. That fits with mm. this. It's difficult. I, I mean, the weird thing is, a couple of years before this, Neil did a sitcom. Yes, so oh, Kinvig. He read, yeah, he read, which supposedly was the thing that he was happiest yeah, with. I've never... Again, I think it's out on DVD. I've never seen it, but... It's about a man who becomes friends with a woman who claims to be an alien. Yeah. I think. I haven't seen it either. It sounds completely insane, mm. 
and yeah, apparently that's the thing that he was happiest yeah. with—not inventing TV television drama. as we know it. <laughs> yes. This bizarre sitcom that was cancelled after one series. It's kind of nice to imagine him sitting at home. What in front of the TV, like Edward at the screening of um, Plan Nine from Outer Space, going, "This is it. This is the this single is the one I'm going to be remembered <laughs> for." So while um, the uh, this the man, the, the catatonic man, is being wheeled around, they're, they're being watched in the hospital by another suited figure. Mm. While Dan goes off and flirts with the nurse in a sort of a jokey way, yeah, she's yeah. A, a little bit. She's, she's almost his age, so she's far too old for him. And he, he goes into his office. And he opens the fridge and gets out a beer. Yeah. And he's going to have a nap. He's got a fridge in his office. Mm. While the suited man attacks the patient by ramming his fingers into his eyes. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure wasn't in the <laughs> No, that was, that was one of the things that Neil didn't like. Yeah. It's the repeated, in bizarrely over-the-top levels And of I violence. think later on... Later on, someone gets a drill through the head. Well, someone it, else has their head ripped clean off their body. But in con- I think in, in, in reference to this, this poor guy in the hospital, because it looks... Because it's called Season of the Witch, and I think I initially thought they were trying to pull the guy's eyes out because, I don't know, there's a, there's another really good 80s film called Warlock, and at one point uh, the Warlock, who's played by Julian Sands. Julian Sands, pulls somebody's eyes out and uses them as the component of a spell. And I think I kind of assume that that's what. Oh, it's that the, when you don't know the plot, you kind of start you start to assemble whatever you think's going. And I thought, oh, okay, fine. The creepy men in suits, for some reason, are gathering the components for spells that will obviously be revealed later. But no, they're just... Don't they describe it later as they've r- crushed his skull or something? Like yeah. They, they, they're quite... Gr- quite. It's really... I mean, there was a sense, I think, that they had to fall into line with mm. the the slasher movie yeah. uh, conventions, like the, the Friday the 13th movies, which were just absurd. My favourite kill in the Friday the Thirteenth films is where someone's zipped up in a sleeping bag and just slammed repeatedly against a tree. I don't. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I don't remember that. I mean, I've seen the. I saw the first Friday the Thirteenth film and was surprised by how, relatively speaking, boring it was. Yeah. Because none of the kids know that they're being stalked by a murderer, and it's you suddenly realise that without that one fairly important fact, it's just a bunch of teenagers sitting in a room going. Gee, Brad's disappeared. I wonder where he could be. I'll just go outside and look for him. And then 20 minutes later, somebody goes, Gee, Brad and Connor have both disappeared. I wonder where... Yeah. It never occurs to anyone that they that they should leave. No. Because there's nothing keeping them there. No, exactly. Uh, That's where the evil dead gets round it, by stranding people in a house. Mm. And they can't get away. Yeah. So they have to... Whereas in, in, in Halloween, the evil comes and gets you. Like Soviet Russia. Yes, <laughs> yes, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, Soviet Russia, evil eats you. Well, Cabin in the Woods as well, isn't it? That's part of it. Well, Cabin in the Woods, I think, has a lot of fun with yeah. uh, playing around with the rules. Um, that's a very good film. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile in hospital. Meanwhile in hospital, I'm just trying to, my, my brain is just trying to catch up. Dan hears the scream of a nurse as she finds the remains of the man and he sees the suited fellow. He sort of runs after him a bit, mm. chases him outside where, he's, where the man has got into a car, pours petrol over himself and then sets himself on fire and the car blows up. Mm. And it's, a, it's quite a well-executed... Well, it's a very well-executed explosion. It looks really nice. Yeah. Um, and there's some... It's... 
It's all quite well, because there's some nice tracking shots as well as they're running around in the hospital. It looks, you know, for, for all my complaining about the the first few minutes look a bit cheap, it starts to look quite nice at this point. Well, the director of photography is Dean Cundy. And what else had he done? He'd worked with Carpenter on oh, okay. most of his previous movies. He would also become perhaps better known for a movie he'd do two years later, which was Back to the Future. Oh, OK. <laughs> he was director of photography on all the Back to the Future movies and Who Framed Roger Rabbit... Wow. Uh, and he was also hired by Steven Spielberg for Jurassic Park. Mm, okay. So he has a very clean, crisp visual style and a mix of shadows and mm. vivid colour. Did he do... Was he director of photography on Halloween? Yes. Because the one th- shot I always think of in Halloween is when um, Jamie Lee Curtis is coming through the house and Michael Myers literally just steps... I think he may even just lean forwards a bit, but he almost appears to melt out of the shadows and then melts back in. It's a really lovely little shot. It's, I think it's just a very simple lighting trick. They just yeah, yeah. very gradually faded up a little light on it yeah. to reflect off the white mask. But it's it's simple tricks mm. like that. And it's the same in The Fog, which I managed to see in a cinema, and it really showed off how little sense the film makes. Uh, oh. It's heavily recut because Carpenter made the first version of the movie and it was an hour and ten minutes long and you never see the ghosts. And you realize, oh, oh, right, my ideas don't work at all. Um, Can I have some more money so that we can make a releasable movie? Can we finish it? In fact... And the finished version of The Fog doesn't really hang together as a story. But as a kind of... As an atmosphere piece. As an atmosphere piece and as this kind of dream story, having a nightmare about a a coastal town under siege from ghosts... It's brilliant. Mm. It's so moody and so atmospheric and so claustrophobic. Yes. It's another movie in which a character played by Tom Atkins drinks a lot and cops off with a much younger woman yeah. because he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis as a hitchhiker and less than an hour later they've already had sex at, at his home. <laughs> <laughs> so he was less than an hour from home and he still picked up a hitchhiker. That's a bit strange. That's California. But actually, going back to you saying about seeing the fog in the cinema, Halloween 3, I, for, that, for the opening titles, would have been good to see those in a cinema because they're very, very sharp, lurid colours. I can, I can imagine it would have looked really good on a proper-sized cinema screen because it looks good on a TV set. Yeah. So, yeah, I would, would like to have seen that sort of full-size. In which... Form? Did you watch this? Did you get get a DVD or uh, find something? Amazon. Online? It's it's a, a, a uh, Amazon video. Yeah, yeah. It's all oh, right. It's an interesting. It's obviously not the world's greatest copy because when the Universal logo came up at the start, there's lots of nice sort of optical pops and hisses. So mm. I suspect probably not a very remastered print at all. Well, I've got uh, a now out of print DVD that has a commentary by Kim Newman and Stephen Jones. To, okay. To horror experts and critics. Which is very interesting. Yeah, it gives yeah. a lot of detail about Nigel Neal. But again, it's not fantastic quality. Oh, that's a shame. There is a deluxe Blu-ray available in the US, but not in the UK. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's something, something for Arrow Video, please. Hmm. Re-release this movie. Dan argues on the phone with his wife again. <laughs> Yeah, the wife doesn't come across... The wife is a bit of a, a shrew character, isn't she? She's... Well... I can imagine that he was a really awful husband. Yeah, I get that impression, to be honest. Um, and um, they agree that he's going to be looking after the kids on Saturday night. Mm. And uh, he also notes that the patient they brought, the, 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 the dead man, 
had a silver shamrock mask. His body is identified by his daughter, Ellie Groombridge, of made-up name fame. Yes, yeah. Uh, but Dan is very suspicious about what happened. I mean, weirdly, there's not really much investigation into what happened. There's an autopsy. Yeah. But you'd think that if a patient is murdered in the hospital and the murderer then commits suicide, the police would be all over this. Mm. They're not that Do bothered. Do see any police in this film? When there's, there's, there's a shot of the explosion site as the sun's coming up, and they haven't even taped the area off. No, no. I mean, I like that. As it, I think it fades up from blackness, and it's just yeah. that following day caption, and it's just the almost the, the camera's in the same position. Yeah. It's dawn, and there's just the burned-out husk of the car. That's a really nice mm. shot. But yeah, there should be some police tape There should be somebody that. standing there to stop people that trampling all over the crime scene. Yeah. Especially since they have a lot of difficulty isolating stuff later on. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's been it's suggested that um, the reason was drugs. That um, the murderer was hopped up on goofballs or mm. something that made him super strong so that he could crush the skull, which he didn't do. I've written down here, flirts with everyone. Now, that clearly refers to Dan. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure he flirts, what, what specifically that... that he, well, he, he flirts with the nurse. He flirts with the... the medical examiner. The medical... Yeah, yeah. And obviously, he, he cops off with the, the daughter And cops well. off with Ellie, yeah. Um, so, yes, he's basically... He doesn't even put his beer down first. Well, the next thing is we cut to him... Um, now, it's now Friday, the 29th. Uh, and he's in a bar yes. drinking in the middle of the day. <laughs> and actually, I've just something I've just realised that, as you say, the film's very very determined that you always know when it is. So it says Saturday, Friday, whatever, you know, uh, the next day. Mm. You've got the Silver Shamrock commercials. You don't need captions telling you how long it is to Halloween because that's what the Silver Shamrock commercials do. Yeah. So it's a, it's a weird sort of failure of confidence on the part of the production team as if they're worried that people won't pick up on this detail. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, one thing that annoyed me is we can't see the TV screen in the bar, but we hear a lot of cartoon noises, oh, like yes, whooshes yeah. and boings, and, and I really, really hate that because it's such a lazy shorthand for... Generic, so generic, yeah, yeah. generic thing that we're not going to show you, and I liked that he hates it too. Yes, Told him yes. to change the channel. Yeah, and what does he change it to? A trailer for Halloween, yes, <laughs> which is on Sunday night, and it's going to be followed by the big Silver Shamrock giveaway. Mm. Whatever that might be. Yeah, who knows? But I, I did. But it's just sort of confirming. Yes, this is separate. This, you know, Halloween is a movie. Mm. It's yeah, yeah. It does. It's kind of, A few years later, it would have been called postmodern. I don't think they had a word for it in the early 80s. It was postmodern before there was anything to be post about. Yeah. I can't remember. That's, that's someone else's line. I can't remember who <laughs> said that, though. Oh, that's um, Tristram Shandy. Oh, OK. Steve Coogan said that about Tristram Shandy. Um, but that was written in the 18th century, so... Mm. <laughs> and, it also, and it refers to Halloween as the immortal classic. But, yeah. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you're, think, not, you're not Zack Snyder. Nigel O'Neill wrote that line. Definitely. <laughs> Is that John Carpenter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, how did this line get in? I oh, thought it was taken out. Classic. Oh, was a lovely thing to say. Thank you, um, Nigel or Tommy. <laughs> yes. And the daughter, the daughter turns up. 
thought, yeah, she's just clearly looking at all the bars. <laughs> that's where he's going to be. And um, she wants to know if her father said anything before he died. And he, Dan lies. Oh, yes, he does, doesn't he? He says uh, something, something like... Uh, he said he loved you very much. Give my daughter my love or something like that. But she knows that he's lying because he was very concerned about something. Well, he disappeared. Mm. And they decide to team up to investigate. And something that, something that this get made picked up on, which I do agree with, is that I really hate that she always calls him Popper. You know, that completely passed me by. But Oh, what, what she calls her dad? She, she calls, calls her dad Popper. Yeah, not no, no, Dr. No, no. Dad. Not, 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 <laughs> sure. Dr. Drunk. I was worried that there was some terrible Freudian thing going on for a minute. But, oh, there is. Well, there, there is anyway. <laughs> but, but, but there was another terrible Freudian thing going on. But yes, she does refer... She keeps referring to her dad as Popper. Yes, you're quite right. Just, I mean... That's weird. Don't call him that. Ah, call she's, him dad. She's upset. Call him father. She walked into a hospital and the policeman forced her to identify her dead dad by looking at his crushed skull. How I did mean, she identify him from his crushed skull? I don't know. I, do, I really don't know. I, I, there, there was a point when I thought that seems a little bit unnecessary as they were asking her to look. Maybe he had a distinctive tie or something. <laughs> he had a very... Um, he had a mole on his neck. He had a unique tongue. Yes. But they're according to their investigation. Um, he disappeared, having visit having uh, around the time he visited mm. the Silver Shamrock factory at the town of Santa Mira. So they decided to go on a road trip to investigate. And before they set off, Dan is on the phone to, <laughs> to his, his wife, <laughs> explaining again as. Like, she's on the other end, like the teacher in the Peanuts, going... Yeah. And he hangs up, and as he steps back, you see that he's got resting on the top of the public phone a six-pack of beer to just last him for the journey. Yeah, well, you never know when you might need to get drunk. Yeah, it's... It's kind of... It's, it's kind of it, he's, he's not a nice character. It's never really sort of come, comes out and stated, but yeah, he must be a lousy dad. Oh, he's definitely a deadbeat dad. Yeah. I think that's definitely the um, the presentation of him. That mm. he's he's basically a decent man. Yeah. But he's really not very good at it. Yeah. So he's a doc. He's a doctor, and he's trying to be a good doctor, and he kind of works. He flirts with every woman he meets. He doesn't have time for his family. Mm. His wa- ex-wife clearly got fed up with this a long time. Yeah, ago, yeah. And that's why she hates his. Yeah, parents. yeah. You can see why she divorced him. To be yeah. honest. Also played by. Um, not only the director's wife, but one of the actors from the first Halloween. Okay. Who uh, is the one who strangled in the car? I yeah wouldn't. It's but it's well, again was, it's been well, a, quite nice. a few years since I've seen Halloween, so I wouldn't have picked up on that. But, but they arrive in town, and it's very weird. Mm. It's very creepy. I just don't stop saying creepy. It's very <laughs> sinister. It's very sinister. Possibly, to, and this is there's a, every now and again there's there's ideas that don't seem to go anywhere so that at one point you cut to a loudspeaker and it says oh it's curfew time everyone to bed and that just never seems to the cu- that curfew never goes anywhere yeah. it doesn't seem to have any impact it doesn't pay off no or... because he immediately goes outside to a liquor store yeah, to buy yeah. some more booze <laughs> this is an emergency <laughs> <laughs> this is an emergency I'm almost out of beer but it's just I I don't know if they put that in 
because they're shooting on a limited budget and they can't afford it. I don't know if it's just one of those things where somebody is worried that people will go, oh, there's, how come nobody's walking around? But it's a small town in America. It's a company town. Yeah, well, yeah. Very specifically, the whole town's economy is geared towards the Silver Shamrock factory. Yeah. So they could say, that's why it's so quiet there. Yeah. That's why it's so sinister and muted because everyone there works for the company and the yeah. company's authority there is absolute. But the, the curfew line just seems to be over it seems to almost to over egg it it's laying on the weirdness to and the yeah. fact that the curfew time is six o'clock in the evening i mean seriously was it six i thought it said six yeah for some reason i remember it being nine oh seems my, a bit more reasonable yeah but six yeah because if it was yeah because if it's late october you could be out at nine mm. or out at half past eight and it would be dark so it wouldn't be weird that he had gone to a liquor store but it was weird mm. so yeah i think you're right it was six yeah I mean, it's just so odd. I it, mean, it's one of those odd little details they put in. I don't it doesn't really go anywhere. It's possible it's something that refers back to an earlier draft. And, yeah, yeah. Some, some leftover appendage. But I kind of feel the same way about the TV cam. There's a running thing through the, the film as well that, that this town is wired up with TV cameras and that... Um, I've forgotten the name. Who's the, who's the baddie that... Connell Cochrane. Cochrane, that's it. Mr. There's, a, there's this running thing that Mr. Cochrane keeps an eye on the town and knows everything that goes on. And he does, except for those occasions when the script re- requires that he doesn't. Yeah. And it's almost one of those things that the moment you start drawing attention to it, the points when that... So, that yeah, I, I just found the curfew unnecessary. Mm. Chop it out. Don't need it. Well, the other thing about the town is everyone there is... So Irish. Yes, they are very Irish. It's the most Irish place in the world. Mm. If I heard the story that I heard that there is there are more Pakistani people in Leicester than there are in Islamabad. Yeah, quite. There of are course. more Irish people in Santa Mira than there are in Ireland. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. It's they've all kissed the Blarney Stone and everything. Yeah. Now Nigel Neal, it was in fact from the Isle of Man. Yeah. And I suspect that one of the, his many bugbears in the world, one of the many things that he hated, could well be Irish people. Possibly. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, we could add that to the list. Because Ireland does not come off well in this movie. No. <laughs> Everyone Irish is not to be trusted. They check into a hotel as husband and wife, because obviously... Because you have to, otherwise yeah, yeah. you don't, can't get to the sex. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. And at the same time, an, uh, an awful family arrive. Yeah, again, I mean... And this are is they fine? Nigel Neal hating Americans I was going to well. say awful to the point of parody, but they're, they're kind of fun, actually. They're so cartoonishly awful that yeah. you just kind of go along with it. It's like... It's like the Griswolds. Yeah, that's it, funny enough, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been... I don't know, because the first vacation movie came out the same year, but it would have been, if this had come out a couple of years later, if it had been Chevy Chase and I would have been fantastic. that would have been distressing. <laughs> I mean, it would have been even more mind-bending than the movie is already. But yes, I think you're right. I think, again, horrible American fan. At some point, I, I like to imagine Nigel Neal as um, like Philip Maddox's character from Dad's Army going, that's it, you're going on the list. <laughs> At this point, uh, Dan decides, oh, it's getting late, I need a drink. <laughs> and he, in, in talking to Ellie, says, oh, you know, I, I could, uh, I, you, you have the bed, I'll, I'll sleep somewhere. So I can go sleep in the car. 
and she says, where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? And my skin crawled so much that my shoes became a lot looser. Because it all... It's, it's the early 80s you've got to have a sex scene in there I, think, I suppose the assumption is that there's a, it's, the film will be watched by a bunch of horny teenagers in a drive-in so you've got to have a sex scene but it's a Nigel Neal movie I mean it's, True. It's, it's, it's pulling in so many different yeah, directions yeah. it's trying to be a slasher movie and it's trying to be a Nigel Neal movie where it's, it's a scary story but mm. there's a point to it and it's supposed to have yeah. a wider context and it's this exploitation level nonsense mm. and all these extra bits that have been added in that don't mean anything or go anywhere like the 6pm curfew which I've written down oh, okay, as you yeah. can see so you were absolutely right and the announcer, the, the announcing voice is Jamie Lee Curtis oh, okay, yeah. one of her many uncredited characters <laughs> in John Carpenter movies yeah. because she's also in Escape from New York and Escape from LA as voiceover oh okay yeah. she narrates the um, prologues to each oh movie. yes she does doesn't she yeah so Dan goes off for some booze yeah. because he hasn't had a drink in ten minutes and he bumps into a, a homeless man who comes up with the worst opening line ever which is something along the lines of can I have a swig of your drink I don't have any diseases it's not a good opening <laughs> well he's just trying to he's, he's just trying to break the ice yeah he's, he's a nice fellow actually yeah. he explains a bit about the town mm. but you know, it's, it's run by we've already heard already about Connell Cochran who, who runs the company owns the factory and have we seen his limousine drive yes, past at yes, this point? Yes, that happens just yeah. as they arrive at the hotel that his limousine just cruises by mm. menacingly. And the homeless man explains that you know, Cochrane, when he took over the factory, brought in all his own people and is you know, squeezing out all the, the people who used to live there before. And he says, oh, sure, sure you should be saying this around all the, the video cameras and mm. everything? And he says, oh, I don't care about that. Hey, Cochrane! you <laughs> shut up for god's sake yeah. ixnay on the uh, qfa yeah um and then threatens and then announces he's going to burn the factory down yeah well i think i like this oh, i'm going to take some molotov of cocktail burn the factory down oh this will be their last halloween so I thought ah that comes up later on yes it does yeah, it does doesn't well, that's a little bit of foreshadowing there mm. but then he gets his head pulled off and then he gets his head pulled off now for some reason i've suddenly written anthology like twilight zone so obviously the, the um mm. The Halloween movies were going to turn into an anthology series. I don't think that's ever worked in movies. Where no. you've I mean, carry on, but... Yeah, mm, yeah, sort of. The model of anthologies of, sort of spooky stories mm. is The Twilight Zone. Yeah. That's the gold standard. But I don't think that's ever really translated to film. No. Successfully as a series. There's Twilight Zone, the movie... But even there, they, well, they did four, it's, four it's scripts four, in one. It's four one, short it? films with different directors in one feature-length package. Was it? Yeah. Is it three? I'm, I'm, it's I, four, because there's the one with the, the racist, oh, yes, Landis, yeah. which ends with him, uh, with the actor being killed by a helicopter. Oh, yeah. Apparently, some doesn't like it when you ask them about that in interviews. Hmm. Max Landis, the human car alarm. Always making a noise when you don't want to hear it. <laughs> The Steven Spielberg one, the nice, yeah, with the sickly sweet one about people, the old people yeah. becoming young again, which is kind of nice, but it's a bit much. You could really dial back the saccharine, yeah, it, is. it would work a lot better. Yeah, the yeah. Joe Dante one about the um, like, like most of that. The first one is an original story, I think. The other three are remakes. Hmm. 
Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the kids sending people to the cornfield. Yeah, it's, the, a good, um, it's a it's a good life or something like that. It's a it's a good life. Yeah. That's the one where he can. He's got some incredible powers, mm. and he can. Yeah, if he doesn't like he's, you, he's he turning, sends you and away. He, and it's turning the world into a, like a cartoon because he loves cartoons. Yes. And that's quite unpleasant. Mm. And then the last one is Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, which is the one everyone yes, yeah. everyone remembers, with John Lithgow going crazy on the plane because yes. someone ripping bits off the wing. And that's directed by George Miller. Oh, really? He just done Mad Max Two, oh, wow. which was a sensation. Yeah. After this, and it's the complete opposite to Mad Max Two, mm. and it's terrific. Yeah, it's good fun. And I mean, because of course that is in the TV series. That's the one that William Shatner played the guy. That, yeah, and. If you're going to recast William Shatner, actually John Lithgow going berserk is not a bad choice. John Lithgow is a—he's a really underrated actor mm. because he can play anything. You get, he's done so many movies and shows where he's done lunatics and terrifying psychopaths, and then he did Third Rock from the Sun, yes. which was a sitcom mm. and a really broad sitcom, and he would throw himself into it. Yeah, and he's absolutely hilarious. And there's an episode where the uh, if you haven't seen it, listen. It's about aliens on Earth in human form, c- conducting a study of yeah, Earth yeah. society, and he's the he's the high commander. And there's an episode where the the ruler of their planet comes to visit. Oh, and he's played by William Shatner, and they make a joke about air travel. Really? About oh, it's a terrible time they had on the aeroplane. Like, oh, you did you did as well? Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> But it's and it's William Shatner at his most William Shatner mm. because and that's that's a show where everyone overacts and it just fits because yeah. that's the tone of the show. So William Shatner could just just remember your words and be yourself and just knock yourself <laughs> out. Yeah. But at that point, Dan gets away from because he doesn't want to have to share his booze with anyone else. No, it's, no, it's no. He's already he's my whiskey. He's split, he's split the bottle once. I mean, let's. Oh, he does give him a sip actually. In fairness, and yeah. then. He gives the homeless man a sip, and then he has a sip. Oh, yeah. It doesn't wipe the bottle. No, no. Well, the guy said he doesn't have any diseases. I think... And also, I there's mean, that sweet alcohol. In it. He, need, he needs something to take the pain away. <laughs> well, the alcohol might help to kill any germs or anything, but... Possibly. Given the, the, the inference that um, Dr. Dan sleeps around a lot, mm. it's likely that he's given something to the homeless man. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> but then we follow the homeless man, and we see mm. a little bit of his home life. He goes back to his hovel, which appears to be a, an empty shipping container, and he makes himself some dinner of squirty cheese on white bread. <laughs> so I thought, and his face is grumbling and muttering to himself. And I thought, this is interesting. Hmm. I like it when we sort of just go off on a tangent. We see what's 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 this character doing when the rest of the movie's happening somewhere else. But then the suited men appear, and they just rip his head clean yes. off. Yes, <laughs> there was a point when I thought that they were going to use the squirty cheese to kill her, but I think that would have been an entirely different film. Well. I remember when I watched this on TV, uh, I think the first time I watched it all the way through, it was the night that I went back to university for my second year, and I was on my own in the house, I had a week until my lectures started, and it was was me and my black and white TV, Hmm. away from my parents, not feeling terribly pleased about the world, and in fact the night before I'd watched Big Trouble in Little China, and um, there was a cut, because the point where they pull his head off it cuts away mm. just as his neck gets slightly too long. Yeah. And it cuts to the next scene. Whereas here, it comes right off and there's a squirt of blood as yeah, the there's a long, Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a long shot of his body, isn't there, with all blood coming out of the neck hole to give people an eye full of gore. Because yeah. 
But yeah, you don't need that. I think the assumption is that the audience are like Dr. Dan. They're just jonesing for their next shot of blood. (laughs) Well, there's also another guest at the hotel. Oh, that's right. It's a saleswoman, isn't it? A saleswoman called Marge Gutman. And she's come in person to complain about one of the masks being broken. Hmm. Which seems to be unnecessary. She could just do it by post. Meanwhile, Ellie's had a shower, so there's some more exploitation stuff where yeah. you, she's all she's all nudie through a frosted glass window, and she's wet and immediately gets into bed. Yeah. Now, something that I, I did pick up on that was interesting. Marge is in bed reading a book by Carlos Castaneda. Yeah. Had you heard of him? I can't say... I, I actually meant to go back and look up the book title to see if I could work out, but by the time I got to the end of the film, I'd forgotten, so no. Now, I, I was interested in it. What, what are characters reading? What's mm, happening yeah, when, yeah. when the rest of the movie's going? So I looked up Carlos Castaneda to find out a bit about him. Firstly, to see, oh, what's, what's the book? Is it something that could be connected to the movie? He was the leader of a shamanistic cult. Okay. And he wrote a number of books about you know, realising your inner power and all that, that kind of new oh, age right. stuff. Okay. After his death, the several common law wives he had... Oh, it's that kind of cult. Yeah. He had about four or five common law wives. They all vanished. Oh. Ten years later, the skeleton of one of them was found uh, in the desert. Nice. That is weird. Yeah, yeah. And that happened after the movie came out. He died in about 1998. Mm. Possibly a movie in there. Yeah, yeah. Because a best-selling author, and he dies, and then all his followers vanish, and they find the skeleton of one, and they couldn't work out what killed her because she'd been dead for so long. For too long, yeah. Because she was a skeleton. Meanwhile, the lovely medical examiner, who Dan has also been trying to woo, has been... Uh, fiddling through all the, the bits of uh, exploded car and was realised that she, the bits that she thought were a human body were actually more car parts. And she tells that to Dan on the phone. Yes, yeah. And But, but of course nobody realises the significance no, of this. No, no. And then... It's, it's oddly jumping around. Yeah. Ellie has changed into sexy underwear that she's brought with her. Yeah, well, you know, she's... In fact, earlier, I think, uh, Dr. Dan has had some comment about, I think these clothes can stand more, one more day. So he's obviously bought nothing with him, <laughs> the clothes he's standing up in. But, you know... He's getting ripe. Yeah. And um, they, uh, yeah, they, uh, they, they, they have sex. And then, is that the point where the line comes up, where he's just saying about, by the way, how old are you? Yeah. I, that's... She's clearly an adult. Yeah, you yeah. You should say that. But that's weird. I don't, I, wo- I don't like that. I wonder if it was one of those kind of executive decision lines where somebody went, oh, actually, we'd better put this in just in case somebody thinks she's too young for him. Yeah, mm. it's, it's, it's not a good line. It's not... You know what the really weird thing is? The actress who plays her, Stacey Nelkin, was Woody Allen's girlfriend when she was 16 and Woody Allen was in his 40s. Um, and she was the Woody. inspiration for that storyline in Manhattan. I like I, re- I really like Woody Allen's early funny films but I do wish he'd stop doing stuff like that because yeah, oh well fine 
So it's sort of like, yeah, Woody Allen playing Dr. Dan. That would have been an entirely... I would have liked to have seen Woody Allen have a go at doing a slasher, in the same way that Sleeper sent up science fiction films or things. The idea of Woody Allen doing a film that kind of sent up slasher, it might have been quite good. I mean, it might have just ended up like um, a sort of one of Mel Brooks's more terrible later films, like Dracula Dead and Loving It or something. So I was watching a video the other day about um, a a million ways to die in the West. Oh, God, by choice. I, well, that's why I paid to see the movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, You're enabling Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> I've stopped watching Family Guy. Oh, OK. Fine. I missed it one week, and then I realised I didn't care. Yeah. But they were the, the reviewers were talking about it, said this, this film is terrible, but it does suggest that it has this character who has a, very, a weirdly modern outlook in a Western. And I thought, well, obviously, the thing that this leads to is they should have done something like Sleeper in reverse, Mm. Where, so that and then they do. Why didn't Woody Allen ever make a western? Yeah, a comedy yeah. western where he's the sort of the nebbishy New York type character, but it's the old west. Yeah, that, that would imme- that that immediately creates possibilities. Yeah, I suppose in a way that's kind of love and death because you you know because you have the whole sequence of him joining the army and stuff like that. But yeah, no, that would have been... Would it have been too similar to Blazing Saddles? Well, it depends when it would have been made. Mm. Because if it was the early funny period, then it would have been around the time yeah. of Blazing Saddles. But Blazing Saddles, I think, plays so much more on the race element. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot, and it's a lot broader, of course, yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, it has a lot of stuff where Woody of the time would have drawn that because a lot of the movies at the time were much more influenced by, I think, silent movies mm. and... Thirty slapstick, whereas Brooks's movies, like uh, specifically Blazing Saddles, it's much more. Yeah, it's a bit more transgressive, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. So there's a, there's a line I like that was cut, where there's a scene, the bit where um, Lily von Stupp seduces Bart, and um, so is it is it true the way they say your people are gifted, and the light goes out. And she says, oh, it's true, it's true. <laughs> and the line they cut was him replying, ma'am, you're sucking on my knee. <laughs> wow, I'm kind of surprised that that so was the point where they thought it went too, too far. far. Yeah. I, can ima- I think maybe they thought, well, we'll put that in. So if they said we have to cut something, we'll cut that. It, and we can live with losing that. It is possible that, that it was kind of one of the sort of traps that they build into scripts to be something that the censors will object to, and yeah. it will take their attention away from all the other, <laughs> all the other stuff that's in there. But um, she gets distracted from her book because she's come to the town to complain about the poor quality of the silver shamrock merchandise because the logo, the little badge, fell off her mask or something. And then when she goes, when she goes into her motel room. It falls on the floor, and she doesn't notice until she's in bed. Yeah, and she picks it up, and she notices that on the back there's a kind of like a circuit board. So she pulls out a screwdriver from somewhere and starts fiddling around with it, as one does, yeah. and it fires a laser into her face. <laughs> yeah, that's that's unexpected. Mm. I mean, that's obviously. What am I trying to? Th- I'm trying to think of a. Of, not exactly a similar sequence, but obviously you've got that business that people finding printed circuits. It's um, Terror of the Autons. 
And I've just realised this this film reminds me a lot of Terror of the Autons. Oh the yes, the, the Doctor Who serial. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is all about plastic items attacking people. Yeah. But it's in the in the previous story with the Autons, there's just shot window dummies that come to life and mm. attack people. But here it's uh, it's plastic dolls, yeah. plastic uh, daffodils of a type given away by a, yeah. a big giveaway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, telephone it, wires. But it's the uh, it's the the bit where the doctor is falling around with the plastic daffodil, and it's. And I think actually somebody comes up with the line again about um, it's been prematurely activated or something. So it is. It's just. But there's and obviously the other thing this film's got quite often in it is you will have the robot people standing around, and you will get a kind of synthesizer sting. And it reminded me of the sort of radiophonic sting you get into. It's just into. I don't think it's it's it's, no, it's in no way intentional. Well, in that in that point, where I do notice that there's a lot of uh, times where someone dramatically steps into the frame mm. and there is a, a sting. Yeah, that's Halloween. That's yeah, the first this one. is true. But uh, it's just it's the more it's the because it's done because all the music's done on synthesizers. It sounds like the kind of noises that the radiophonics workshop was producing yeah, it does. in the early. So, and so it's just all the way through the film. I was bothered because I kept. It was reminding me of something else, and yeah, it was reminding me of Terror of the Autos. <laughs> but um, the, the the face laser, yes, um, it's it's having some kind of reaction. It's sort of deforming her, or mutating her, and she's going, yeah. And as Dan and Ellie are having sex next door, she says, "What's that?" And he says, "Who cares?" And then carries on <laughs> because they forget that they're supposed to be doing detective work. Yeah. I suppose at that point, all that they're still investigating the missing dad, that they kind of haven't uncovered the terrible conspiracy yet, have they? No, but they know that there is some kind yeah. of connection between whatever's happened and Silver Shamrock. Mm. And they know that Marge is there because of her connection with Silver Shamrock. Yeah. So they should be paying attention to anything weird that's going on in there. Well, you'd think. The company men arrive to take Marge away, and we finally get to meet the head of the company, mm. Connell Cochran, a very charming, twinkly-eyed Irish fellow, played by Academy Award nominee Dan O'Hurley. What was he? What was he nominated for? The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. Okay. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Right. And he is speaking with his actual speaking voice. So he really did, did sound that Irish. Hmm. And tying back to our favourite film for Cinema Limbo that we keep talking about, that very same year, his son played Brad in Superman 3. <laughs> really? Gavin oh, O'Mellahy, yeah. Brilliant, I didn't know that. So the company is going to take Marge off to the medical facility at the factory because, oh, we, we have a very good medical facility there, you know. Which should kind of be a red flag in itself because yeah. what the hell is the Silver Shamrock company doing that it needs a world-class medical centre? Mm. So just doing the voice that made me think, would this movie have been better if they'd cast as Cochrane Terry Wogan? Because he's so reassuring. Mm. There was an episode of Being Human... Oh, that's right. Where the... where someone is hallucinating that he's talking that Terry Wogan hosting a quiz show on TV is talking to them and telling them to go out and kill. Yeah, and it's really uh, Terry Wogan came in and he recorded it, and he's doing it in his usual very friendly, jovial. Well, 
well, you know, why don't you go out there and why don't you go and kill them all? Wouldn't that be a wonderful idea? And it's weird when you say it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's the old you know, Roger Moore having a nervous breakdown thing. When, a, when they're doing something that's really outside the way you normally perceive someone, mm. and they do it well, yes, then yeah. it's very unsettling. Yeah. Like seeing like a comedian in a very straight, serious role. Oh yeah, yeah. But sometimes, or, or or just, and I'm, I I can't now think of a, a good example. But there are those times when you see somebody do a part that's just so atypical, and it just kind of takes your breath away because they're they're great at it. Yeah. Like in um, Rick Mail presents. In one episode, in particular, he went moved from being his usual sort of frenzied antic self, mm. a dancing queen, the one where he's on a stag do and ends up oh, on yeah. a train going to the north of England, and. He starts off very sort of his frenzied antic bottom like self, mm. and he just slowly unwinds and relaxes over the course of the hour, and he becomes this very likable, charming, romantic lead as he romances a stripper played by Helena Bonham Carter. And you think he would have been an amazing romantic leading man. Mm. Oh, yeah, because th- when he stops pulling silly faces, he's very handsome. At one point, uh, again, has this had that great charm and charisma. When there's one point uh, to, to go back to Doctor Who again, <laughs> it's, a, um, it's it's the milestone, it's yeah. the piece of British television. But when they were planning a, a story that was subsequently abandoned because Doctor Who was cancelled in 1986, The Nightmare Fair, apparently Rick Mel was down as a possible uh, person to play the celestial toy maker. I believe they were just planning on bringing back Michael Goff. Oh, OK. Before. That's interesting, because I certainly heard Rick Mel was good. And I, I remember reading it and thinking that's, that seemed like a, a brilliant choice. But... Well, a year earlier, there was um, Revelation of the Daleks with the character of a DJ mm. who broadcasts to people in Suspended Animation. And he's played in the broadcast version by Alexi Sale. Yeah. And I know they had a huge long list of potential actors to play that role. A lot of musicians, a lot of DJs, yeah. a lot of comedians. And he starts off as doing a DJ hmm. personality all the way through and then eventually when he's sort of, the characters actually meet him when he comes off air he's just kind of sort of shy and quiet well you know I, yeah. I used to listen to the DJ tapes and I really liked them and, and he meets sort of his companion and he's clearly really intimidated by um, a, you know, a meeting woman who's interested in talking to him and he gets all shy yeah. and awkward and I can imagine Rick Mail yeah. playing that I think he was on the list for that yeah I wouldn't and, be surprised and going from being a big domestic and then just well, it's really nice that you came to talk to me. <laughs> so, after all this, the medical examiner has dis- discovered that there is no human evidence in the car at all, mm. because we keep cutting back to her bit by bit as it's drip-fed out. And Ellie and Dan decide to go to the factory to check the factory records, maybe to see if the latest New Order single is in. <laughs> but um, tish. Thought that one up on the way over. <laughs> well, well done, you. Thank you very much. I'll be selling that one to Weekending. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, or Dead Ringers, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would never sing so low. Now, the reason the Kupfers are there is Buddy Kupfer is the leading salesman in the country for Silver Shamrock. Mm-hmm. So that his family has been invited to the factory. I suppose it's yes, a sales incentive thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If, if you're the best-selling salesman in the factory, you can come and visit the factory. With your family, yeah. Yay! <laughs> come on holiday in beautiful Santa Mira, the home of terrifying <laughs> Irish people. Come and see a factory. 
Yeah, it's... Guess what, Bart? We're, go- <laughs> we're going on a school trip to the box factory. It is pretty... Everyone, they seem quite pleased about it. I mean, I think this might be something that they pick up on in How Did This Get Made? The company does not have a sustainable business model. Uh, all they seem to do is make Halloween masks. Well, but, as they're being... Sh- they, uh, Dan and Ellie join the, the tour around the factory. Mrs. Kupfer in particular thinks that Cochrane is amazing. Mm. And she's... There's a, there's a few lines of dialogue that she gets, and she's awful. But she's a real social climber. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you know, you know buddy, this, this could all be yours one day, you know, if you play your cards right. And... Uh, but Buddy talks to Dan about what a, an amazing man Cochrane is that he's built up this huge business and that he's the master of practical jokes oh that's right and then he gives some examples the sticky toilet paper the soft chainsaw mm. and the dead dwarf gag <laughs> I mean I would love to know what the dead dwarf gag involves that's the thing it's clearly just a throwaway joke yeah, I, can, yeah. I, I can imagine Nigel Neal putting that in yeah. I think yeah Oh, that sounds funny. Let's yeah. put that in. On how did this get made? They really try and puzzle out what that could possibly be. Completely missing the point. It's just a joke. Yeah, it's no, a it is a throwaway bit of world building. Yeah, if I mean that is. There was another. How did this get made? And, and okay, fine. It's it's a com- it's a yeah. comedy podcast. It's not, but they do occasionally seem to have a bit of a tin ear when it comes to things that are just meant to be funny. I'm. Uh, there there have been examples on other shows and I wish I could remember them where they seem to agonise over stuff and say well this doesn't make sense it's, it's, it's just a joke and yeah the dead dwarf thing is just a joke but what I like about it is the fact that there are whole worlds inside it and you can try to work out what is the dead dwarf yeah I do like yeah I do like that one. I mean the sticky toilet paper well I think we can all imagine what that one involves and it doesn't yeah. sound very funny well it's a practical joke yeah. so it's funny for the person who yeah see edit up the foam rubber chainsaw uh, cute I guess no it's a soft chainsaw oh soft chainsaw ah right okay, well, that what might... could that be I mean I is see... it like a specific type of chainsaw that doesn't cut you I assume it's... that what you're meant to do is you're meant to put on your novelty Mike Myers mask no you put yeah, your novelty leather face Oh yes, yeah. Sorry, of course. Yes, cross uh, cross fertilizing the wrong films, and then yeah, you're meant to hilariously attack your neighbours, possibly leaving dead dwarfs around the places. And well, then exactly. when they're so terrified by your antics that they go to they go to the bathroom, they get the final one of the of the three practical jokes. Well, the other uh, element is that Cochrane has a little museum in the factory mm. uh, of various clockwork novelty. Yeah, uh, uh, setups. Um, he gives uh, little Buddy Junior a free mask, and notes that um, uh, the the next patch mask. They just have to go. Into, just have to go into the final processing. In fact, this, the whole scene was that shop floor. Yeah, that's the actual workshop where they made the masks. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> surprise. Which sold as merchandise at the time. Yes, that's right. And then they won't, they're not allowed to see around final processing because it's super secret. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Or you could just say, no, it's, it's final quality assurance. Yeah. We don't have anything off the premises unless we know it's absolutely top quality and the badge on the back isn't falling off. Yes. And as they're on the way out, Ellie sees Popper's car. Mm. And I think that's, they've kept it as a, because they, as if they, because they've given false names. Yeah. They're Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And I get the sense that Cochrane 
no, because he's got the the the, uh, the CCTV, and he knows that um, Chalice has spoken to the headless bum. Uh, yes. Head. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, later on in the film, you realise that it's been his game all along, and that he's known everything. At the time, that's a, it. Seems kind of badly staged because she sees the car. She walks up to it. Two sinister men in suits come and sort of just stand in front of her, and she stands there and gets a good eyeful of this car. And then she's walking away, going, "Oh, I'm sure that was Popper's car." It's like, yeah. No, you you were like ten feet there. Away. It either was or it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, and as you say, actually, you, you saying that it was probably done as a warning makes sense. Or I think it was more maybe to flush, to yeah, flush them out. Yeah, that's true. There seems to be a problem on the whole with the movie, in that if you examine it on any level, it immediately falls apart. Mm. The story doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah. As an entire structure, it doesn't hang together. No. But there are enough little bits here and there mm. and the tone and the atmosphere and the music and the direction it, oh, yeah, it it's, works. it's yeah. holding everything up as to stop it from collapsing altogether it works I mean it, like, like a lot of stories it works on a scene by scene basis you know this bit follows this and it, it always kind of it rolls along very nicely but yeah if you go hang on and that was the only bit really where I thought it didn't quite work within that particular moment because yeah she's right in front of the car it's not oh is that Poffer's car or not it's and she's there and it's the, and the most awful family in America are standing there as well and, and everybody is kind of aware that there's this awkward and all she needed to do was go what's this car yeah it's it's, it's a shame mm. I'm, pro- I'm probably getting more hung up on it than I need to to be honest but well they decide to leave town call the cops yes that's it they try and call out but they only get through to the company switchboard which is it's Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis again. again, yeah. And at which point they see suited men outside. I'm struggling um, to remember the order of the film at this point. Has she hasn't? Because I know there's a point where he goes back to the motel. She starts packing. That's it. He does he leave? He go he leaves and goes he, to reception, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so he makes a run for it. Mm. Leaving Ellie behind. Well, she's gone because he goes back to the motel room, and she's already gone at that point. I think. Ah. And then, yeah, yeah, that's it. They're packing. He goes to reception. He comes back. Ellie's gone. He sees the mysterious suited man coming to the front of the motel. Yeah. So he he goes sensibly. He goes out the back. Yeah. And he makes a run for it. Manages to get in. He manages to get into the factory. Um, He finds a little old granny doing some Mm. knitting, and tries to get her her help. But, in fact, it turns out that she's another clockwork facsimile. Yeah, I quite like that bit, because, that's, I, I, again, it's that thing of, as you're trying to build the story in your own head and work out what's going on, I kind of assumed that this was going to be a psycho riff or something, and she was going to be the insane granny or something. But no, ah. she's a clockwork, she's a clockwork uh, automaton. And he gets into a fight with a suited figure and finds him punches him in the stomach yes. and his hand goes straight through yep. and he pulls it out and finds circuit boards and wiring covered in yellow goo. I think that's how robots work. Yeah, yeah. They're like powered by mustard. Yeah. Mustard or custard. Yeah. So they capture him and he's locked up and cuts the following morning. Yeah, that's it. I was trying to remember the sequence of... of 
Yes, yeah, yeah, it is cut to the following morning, isn't it? And now it's Sunday, it's Halloween, mm. and they're transferring Dan to another part of the factory with Cochrane supervising. And he steps out into the sunshine, and there's a lovely moment where he sort of looks around, and takes a deep breath, a deep breath of satisfaction. It's going to be a wonderful day today. Yes, Today's the day that I'm going to be just evil, the worst. <laughs> But he's taken into the heart of the whole operation, where there's a ring of computers, there's screens everywhere, there's uh, boxes of um, masks, boxes of masks, Shit. boxes of badges, and in the middle of it all, the monolith from Stonehenge, uh, with scientists chipping away at it, and um, Cochrane sort of shows Dan around. Says, "Oh well, you know." This is where it all happens. Oh, uh, this this monolith here. Oh, you know, we had a terrible time getting it over from England. You'd never believe how we did it. I quite like the fact that that's obviously the screenwriter just stepping in front of the audience and going, <laughs> "Yeah, just, don't, don't worry. We know. Don't worry." Yeah, about we're, this. we're we're twenty minutes from the end. Seriously, don't get hung up on this. And again, I think again, this was a bit that how did this get made? Really hammered to death, and it's it's it a doesn't joke. matter. It, yeah, it is. It's it's obviously a joke. It is the writer going, I can't think of... I'll, lamp, I'll, I'll just completely lampshade this. I can't work out how they could have convincingly stolen it, so let's make a joke out of that. Yeah, but they're still chipping away at the monolith, so they're still making masks. The on morning, Halloween. The, on the morning of Halloween. Demand for these things is skyrocketed. <laughs> well, we see that it has, because there's a montage of hmm. places all over America that look like Los Angeles where everyone is wearing Halloween costumes, but no matter what outfit they're wearing, they're wearing a silver shamrock mask. Yeah. And my favourite one is someone who's dressed like Admiral Nelson, but with a jack-o'-lantern mask on top. And um, Admiral Pumpkinhead. Yes, yeah. Do you, you, everyone knows Admiral Pumpkinhead, right? From the, the Pumpkinhead family. Yeah, it's like Horatio Popkinhead. Yeah, yeah. And he ascends up the ranks of the Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. Exactly. Until they landed in America in October and they ate him. Yeah, somebody put out his candle. <laughs> they blew him away. <laughs> yes. But the Cupfers, meanwhile, are shown into a test room because Cochrane says that he wants Cupfers' opinion of some new commercials they want mm. to run. So he shows them into this mock up of a living room, which pointedly has no windows, and plays them with the commercial that's going to air that night for. The big giveaway. Yes. The big, big giveaway. And says, Ah, oh, oh, put on your masks, children. Come closer to the television screen. And ah, now watch, 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 watch. And it, the jack lantern flashes, and at that, suddenly seems to trigger something. Hmm. The mask the boy's wearing starts to disintegrate, and then bugs and snakes come out of his face. Yes, and I'm. This is where the film starts to lose me. There's, there's, there's another sequence a little bit later on, and okay, fine. I, I guess I can get it's magic. Well, it, yeah, I'm not sure what I, I, I what I was expecting was that the kid was going to turn around and attack and kill the parents. That's the Nigel Neal thing to happen. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it would be, wouldn't it? It's the children attacking the parents. You can't trust children these days. No, definitely. With their long not. hair and their rock and roll. <laughs> Yes, and they're beanbags and can't, can't even tell the boys from the girls anymore 
<laughs> and their beanbags bean and, and their lava lamps and their plumb lines yeah all these things that are furious <laughs> ley lines surely well but they've got in Quatermass they've got like plumb bobs that they're using to navigate the, the ley lines oh but yes the ley lines as well obviously oh dear um, but yeah seven inch cassettes and what have you but all their music it's just thump 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 <laughs> No, that's Michael Howard, isn't he? He complained about music with repetitive beats, tried to have it banned. Yeah, it doesn't... Michael yeah, Howard said a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't... Obviously, the spiders and the insects and the snakes, you've got the kind of the you gross factor. Yeah. But it's... I'm not convinced it makes a whole lot of... Even within the world that the, that the film has set up, well, I guess... I made a connection between the snakes and Ireland... Oh yeah, of course that Which makes sense. I think sense. is an accident. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, the worst thing an Irish person can think of is a snake. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. I'm allowed to say that now. But uh, that's what's going to happen when yeah, when, when America get, watches the yeah, all the children will be killed and they'll turn into bugs and snakes and attack all the anyone else nearby and it'll be chaos. Mm. Um, having spent all week going through a little tray of remains, the Medical examiner has finally discovered part of it that looks like a bicycle bell. Hmm. But it seems to disturb her. Yeah. So, but this was from a car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why was there a bicycle bell in this car? Mm. And she seems to realise something, but is then attacked by another of the suited men and gets a power drill through the yes, head. Yes, she gets driller coloured, doesn't she? Yeah. So that's the end of that part of the story that went... Nowhere. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a blind alley, isn't it? It's I suppose th- th- there's you could justify it as being Mr. Cochrane sort of closing down all the uh, potential leads back to the company, but it just it's just there for the gorehounds again, really, isn't it? I guess. But that whole that whole thread with her investigating the uh, remains of the car, mm. it doesn't really have any purpose. No, because it doesn't tell the audience anything. Because we we already know they're robots. So we know they're robots now. Yeah, but it's. I think it's saying, or maybe there's a chance that she'll get word that there's something weird going on. I suppose that's meant to be it. But I suppose so. Yeah, it just feels clumsy. Again, a bit like the six p.m. curfew. It feels like a plot thread that was designed to be more significant or never. Because I think the idea is meant to be. It's meant to give the audience false hope that uh, because at, at this point there's, we've already established that nobody seems to be able to call in or call out of the town Yeah, and she calls the sheriff's department I think because she's really freaked out by this bicycle bell um, and I think you're meant to assume that somehow she's going to alert the marines or something yeah. and that they'll all come in at the last minute and then she doesn't and I think it's but it just it, it, it it's not presented like that now you mentioned the marines there. There is a line when I they think say, there is, "Isn't there?" Yeah. There is a line when they uh, Dan tries to get out of the sound. Oh, I'll see, I'll see what we can get, see if we can call in the marines. Mm. That's clearly a figure of speech. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, does that? Don't but tell me. That. Paul Shear, Jason Manzukis, and June Diane Raphael think. Apparently, again, they're comedians. It could be a joke. Yeah. They seem to think he's actually going to call in the marines. A, an example of. How did this get made? 
and this is the slacking off. How did this get made? Podcast? I mean, it's a really. I mean, I like it. it. I listen, it's it's yeah. possibly my favourite movie podcast apart from my own. What's the their episode on Howard the Duck is amazing, and I thoroughly recommend it. Mm. And it's very, and particularly because they it's going the other way. There's stuff that they think they've got wrong, but they've actually got right yeah. because the movie is so insane. What's the film about the that's not Friday the Thirteenth, but is set in a let's sleepaway slum, camp? Sleepaway camp. That's it. There's a bit at the start of that where the dad's in the water with the two. And the, the kids push the dad into the water, and he comes out and he says he's got some line like "you little scallywags" or "you scoundrel." I forget exactly what. I think it's, I think it's "you little scoundrel." I think it is something like that, and they really pick that line to death. Going, oh, why does he call the kids scoundrels? And it's it's. The classic example of a family in joke, you know, yeah. In the same way that my, my dad used to re- my dad used to refer to me as number one son in the manner of sort of Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> and it's just families just talk like that. But it's just really weird to see them get so hung up on just well, a thing. It should be said that the first scene of Sleepaway Camp, and I watched it having listened to that episode of How Did This Get Made, that first scene is almost incomprehensible. Well, because. Yeah you can't work out what the characters' relationship with each other is supposed to be because they seem to be uncle and father and brother yeah. to each other all at the same time. I mean, to be and they f- spent half an hour trying to figure this out and I still didn't know what yeah. it was. I mean, to be fair, sleep, that, that opening scene of Supercamp has got bigger problems. But yeah, it's just that that line about scoundrels really seemed to fox them. And, think, and they're the same with the Marines. I think, I mean, in, the, in this, I think it's... Maybe it's a bit of Neil's British sense of humour... Yeah, possibly. Or Isle of Man- Manx sense of humour. Yeah. That famous comical people, the Manx. Mm. Uh, an island that's so sensitive about jokes relating to inbreeding that their flag is a picture of three legs. <laughs> that's a quite an old joke. But I think just some things don't translate easily. Yeah, possibly. I think the solution is that Paul, Jason and June need to watch more British films. Mm. They should watch a carry-on movie. Ooh. Yeah, they could. I have suggested as a future cinema limber episode carry on Columbus Ooh. but I can't find a copy anywhere has it been erased it's, from it's history it's been erased from history <laughs> wow it's the only one that's not in the big carry on box set gosh what have happened to carry on London because they've announced they were going to make that about three times I think they announced it again I think yeah. maybe nine months ago and nothing's happened so it's obviously not going to happen yeah. because it would have happened by now it's never. It won't. No. It, the Carry On movies were a time capsule, mm. and I honestly have no idea how they could make that work in a modern setting. No. No, I even, don't. Even if you were to do like one of the more abstract, I'd like like a genre spoof. The style of humour is so specific to the 50s through to the 70s mm. I really don't think you can make that work in a modern setting but also I mean I get the feeling as well that you've lost that you don't have comic actors now in the same way that you used to in the 50s and so you know you could get oh look here's Hattie Jakes and here's Barbara Windsor and here's Kenneth Whitney. you know whereas now the divide seems to be much more it's just stand-up comedian you don't have that thing of you know here's Eric Sykes with the latest episode of his sitcom or something yeah you know, so you, I don't even know who you would who you would cast in it because where were, where were the comic actors well I could imagine it Jack Whitehall I suppose with bad education it would be a good way of putting him in something that no one's going to watch so he's far away yeah. <laughs> of just isolating him in his little bubble where no where no one's going to suffer. 
Like, yeah. like the bad education trauma. That kept him busy for six months. <laughs> we could. No one was hurt. If you want to, yeah, we could, we could pitch a film called Carry On Smothering and maybe we could clean up the comedy market a bit. Well, depends how many other comedians you want to murder. Yeah, this is true. They're like, well, Brendan O'Carroll. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I could give me a long enough run up and I could come up with a list. Give <laughs> me a long enough run up and you could just punch him to death. Stuart Lee Francis um, leaps to mind suddenly. Oh. We're really showing off our Guardian reading. <laughs> We're into, we are turning into Nigel Neal. That's the problem. We're sitting here with these young people liking. Um, I can't even remember the name of that. What's the name of Lee Francis's character? That he does all that's all over ITV2 these days. Oh, Keith Lemon. That's it, yeah. You see, I'm just, I am turning into Nigel Neal. I'm just railing against the modern world. The character around whom ITV has structured its entire entertainment output. It's a business model. It may not be a good one, but it's a business model. Colin, Connell Cochran had a business model, mm, and that yeah. was child murder. That's almost as bad. <laughs> but which is more profitable? Keith Lemon, because you can only murder the kids once. This is true. <laughs> Oh, that's the sequel. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I've, so I've written that after the uh, horrible, horrible murder of the uh, yes, yeah, medical examiner, Cochrane talks about his plan and that it's it's a reflection of ancient Celtic traditions. Mm. That there would be that Halloween was the the end and the start of the Celtic year, and that there would be sacrifices of animals and children. So he's only continuing this ancient rite. And I think there's, there's, there's a potential here for, for this backstory to serve future Halloween movies. Yeah. Of you know, ancient, of this, of this being kind of a, a haunted time of year. Yeah, oh, I think, I think there's... If it wasn't for the fact that I can't see the, just the, the basic idea of an anthology film series working, mm. I don't think they would have had any trouble coming up with stories. I just don't see an anthology series working. Um, That's a shame. I think that the thing that killed the movie, I think, was firstly calling it Halloween 3. Yes, it's just yeah. Halloween. Halloween, Season of the Witch. Or yeah. even a better subtitle that more accurately reflected the content of the movie. Mm. And in the publicity really go to town and saying this is not another Michael Myers picture yeah or, just, or Halloween the season of the witch you can even stick a colon in there if you need to but uh, yeah. yeah something like that to just take but yes Halloween 3 I think just front loads it with expectation doesn't yeah. it you thought Michael Myers was the only killer ab- abroad on Halloween night prepare for a new season in terror yeah it could work but I, I like that scene where Cochrane explains. It's very, very cleverly shot. It's that use of shadow, and mm. he looms out of the darkness very menacingly. And he speaks with very blunt disdain for what he thinks Halloween has become. Yes. The, the, the children going out begging for candy. And he really wants to get back to a good old-fashioned Halloween. Mm. Like Kirk Cameron wants to save Christmas. Yes. From, <laughs> from whatever he from, imagines it needs saving from. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Raymond Briggs, probably. Richard Dawkins, yeah. Yeah. But so he's trying to restore the ancient myth. 
I mean, the, the, just uh, in terms of that thing of Nigel O'Neill being weirdly prophetic, at the time this film came out, I can remember being about sort of ten, and you would watch stuff like Different Strokes and things, and they would have the obligatory Halloween episode. And I, there was this awareness that the Americans did things differently. Mm. And, of course, subsequently, and I, it was maybe the end of the, the 80s, early 90s, that Trick or Treat started to become a thing in the UK. Yeah. It's just, again, it's just interesting that here's Nigel Neal railing against something in the manner of year of the Sex Olympics, and... Inadvertently 20, created. Yeah, 20, 25 years down the line. Oh, look, he was right after all. Yeah. It's an angry screed against consumerism mm. about how maybe this sort of dark elements of our history are turned into a, an opportunity to make money. Yeah. Does Auschwitz charge admission? Not yet, I don't think. Uh, there's, Good. you know, in the same way that I think, like Bonnie and was it Bonnie and Clyde's car was sort of put on exhibit, or, oh, yeah. or, or every two-bit sort of carnival that travelled around would have a car that they claimed was Bonnie and Clyde's car or something. Yeah. I mean, actually, I should say, in fairness, I could understand why Auschwitz might need to charge admission mm. for upkeep and things like that, but it's kind of important that they don't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As he finishes his little monologue. He said he's supposed to put a mask over Dan's head and wheeled in a TV for him to watch yes. the movie. He says, Happy Halloween. And at that point, the music from the movie kicks in. Does it? Oh. So it's then being scored by music from the first film it's as he leaves. gone postmodern again. Yeah. yeah. Dan manages to escape by kicking a hole in the TV screen. Which I suspect is just more... I mean, is a... Is, is a a well thought through way to escape I just feel that kicking a TV screen is probably more dangerous than that but there's all electricity in there and stuff and then he uses the glass to cut the straps holding him down and then the one bit I really didn't believe is when he throws the mask over the security camera yeah that's that's that is almost film breaking because it's just yeah it's ridiculous particularly since his arms are still tied against (laughs) his sides and it's impossible for him to do that Mm -hmm. And I've seen it suggested that that was maybe done so that the camera's eye view is like, so it's looking through the mask. So it's like the opening scene of the first Halloween. Yeah. Where you're seeing the point of view through the mask. Uh, he calls his wife and tries to get her to destroy the mask, but she's having none of it. Yeah, she's in a really bad mood, isn't she? Yeah, she's, I mean, it's now full-on te- uh, Peanuts teacher. And she tells him to go to hell and hangs but up. It's quite a night, but, but, but it's... It's a really good moment from the actor playing Dr. Dan as well because he genuinely sounds like he's on the edge of crying. Yeah. He's crying with frustration because he's he's suddenly aware that his years of treating his wife so badly have come back to completely bite him because now he can't... The one time he needs to convince her, he can't. And it's just, it's just really well acted. And combined with, he's also trying to be quiet. Yes, yeah, that's it. To avoid giving away... The, because he's found a phone in a corridor... Mm. Mm, good writing there um, and he, so he's, he's like going through this, he, he wants to scream in the phone but he can't because he can't make any noise yeah. and it's yeah it's a it's a nicely acted little scene mm. um, he finds Ellie uh, who's tied down in a room and uh, frees her and decides to fight back by firstly creeping across the operations room and behind a, a movable rack. Yeah, which is is doesn't really work. It looks too funny, and it's 
Yeah. It's unintentionally comic. Um, it's, it's as if they're trying to hide in plain sight. Yeah. But his plan is to <laughs> mash the buttons on the panel that he probably saw being used. I'm going to give them the benefit. I watched this bit and thought, how the hell does he know what buttons to press to start the commercial? But I'm going to assume that he saw it when they were doing the testing sequence earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. And then he takes a big box of the badges up onto a gantry and throws them over the side. Yes. And it zaps all the... Androids. Androids. And all electricity comes out, and yeah, this is the second point when the film loses me. And, the, and then the monolith starts glowing, and a ring of light appears around all the computer monitors. Yes. And Cochrane is standing in the middle of this. He looks up, and he just gives a very that's very good light clap. Yeah, like, well done. I'm, yeah. I'm genuinely impressed. And then he's shot with the laser beam from the monolith and the stone circle, and turns into ice or glass or something. Or milk. Could be milk. And then he disappears. I don't... Uh, my best guess, maybe they've used the stone from the monolith to build the silicon chips for the computers. And so when the chip thing activates, it forms a stone circle, which is why a blue ring of laser light appears in a circle. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do a lot of the, I'm trying to do a lot of the heavy lifting for the film here because I think I've just given it more thought than that. I think they somebody went. We've got a thousand dollars left in the budget. Let's have a laser. I know. I mean, and they need to get rid of Cochrane in some way, and yeah. they do it in the most baffling way yeah. possible. He turns into ice and then vanishes. Yeah. And then the factory is on and then fire. the factory is is on fire. It doesn't catch fire. It's no, just on fire. Yeah. It went on fire, yes, as they yeah. say. All by itself. Yeah. No, it's the Irish thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. It went on fire. Yeah. Dan and Ellie escape, and then Ellie immediately attacks him because yes. she's another android as well. Because yeah. it's a, bod- a pod movie, supposedly. I always thought that it was a- the aliens that kind of invented that false ending of, oh, phew, we've escaped, oh, no, we haven't. But it's obviously, looking at this, it's it's much older than I thought it was. I mean, actually, it's in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, of course, as well. Well, it's alien as well, because the alien stows away on the escape ship at the end. Of course, it, yeah, it does, doesn't it? And Halloween, where he keeps getting killed and coming back again. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's a very old. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's it's. It, I I just it surprised me because I I kind of thought that false ending thing was a more a more modern development, but it's it's obviously not. It's obviously been around for years. There is a very long sequence then with um, bits of the robot Ellie keep attacking. It kind of goes on it for goes, too long. It goes on far too we've long. Got, we've got the idea at this point. Yeah, it only needs to happen once. Yeah, maybe twice, uh, but the third time I think is too much because she attacks him. And, and then they, they get out. The car and crashes they... into a tree. Yeah. And they get out, and then she attacks him again and knocks her head off. Yeah. And then I think her body attacks him. Yes. And he gets back in the car. And then, and then the, the arm, arm attacks is, yeah. him. And it's doing the whole, like, reaching in from under the frame, like, like yeah. someone reaching around behind a door yeah. to strangle Eric Morecambe. <laughs> yeah, it's that we get it. We've seen it once. We don't need to see it again. But the car's wrecked, so Dan runs to the gas station. From the, yeah. from the beginning of the movie and obviously it took less time because he got to drive part of the way and yeah. Greenbridge the week earlier had to run yeah. so it took him the whole hour and I kind of 
I know we were talking earlier about the fact that you could excise that whole opening sequence and just have the guy turn up at the hospital, but it is quite nice that moment when you go, "Oh, it's the same gas station." Yeah, and it's, the, and it's the same. Yes, yeah, same gas poor guy on duty. What? What's? Why? <laughs> what have I done? It's like Bruce Willis in Die Hard, isn't it? How can the same? <laughs> How can the same stuff happen to the same yeah. guy twice? And he gets onto the phone with the, the networks, and he's he's begging them to to it's, it's minutes until it's going to start. He's begging them to, to turn off. I don't. I, I know it doesn't. It doesn't matter what you tell him. Just, just take it off the air. Take it off the air. It doesn't matter. In the book, in the novelization, oh, he calls through a bomb threat. Yeah, it makes more sense. Which is the simplest way of doing it. Yeah. And uh, at that time, uh, customers arrive, and the gas station attendant, who's kind of watching down, thinking another crazy. Mm. And there's some kids who come out with their silver shamrock masks on, and they're watching TV, and the commercial comes on. Oh, no, you've got, you've got to take it off now. Because oh, we're having technical difficulties. The mm. child changes the channel, and it's on the other channel. So oh, no, no, you can still It comes off again. Ends on the other channel. It's on the third channel, you've got to turn off the third channel. Come on, stop it, stop it, stop it. Cut to credits. Yeah. I think that's quite a bold way of ending the movie. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I, I like. I really like the ending. I thought the willingness of the. I don't know. I I, I, can't, I forget who's in charge of um, American television. Is it the FDA or is that the Federal Drug Administration? It is. The, you're thinking of um, the FCC. FCC. That's. I'm. I'm. I'm impressed that how easy it is to get the FCC to pull channels off the air. Although it does remind me of um, an apocryphal story. I think about Victor Lewis Smith, who was supposedly watching an old Channel 4 programme called After Dark, which was an open-ended chat show that just went on Friday or Saturday nights. The idea was it started late and it just kept going until... Well, the people ran out of things to say. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. closed down. Oliver Reed was on it one day, got drunk. Allegedly, I believe, Victor Lewis Smith is supposed to have phoned the duty office at Channel 4 pretending to be somebody high up when Grade is furious and he wants this off the air now. And the channel went blank. Now, whether that story is true, I don't know, but that's what this, the ending kind of reminded me of. I don't think that story is true because Victor Lewis Smith is an inveterate liar. I know, and it ends with a punchline and, yeah. Be- and also, didn't the same thing happen about uh, Chris Morris in the episode of Blue Jam? Oh, I don't one, know, I because heard. an episode of that was pulled mid-broadcast. I didn't know that. It was on Radio 1, and it was still a radio oh, show. Right. And the last episode of the first series included the address by the Archbishop of Canterbury oh, at the funeral of Diana, re-edited mm. to form a series of highly offensive and occasionally nonsensical insults. Is this the one where it goes something... They have somebody say something like, in this room my father used to service men and women. I think that might be the one. They did another one online of George Bush. Mm, yeah, I think um, I saw the George Bush but, one. But uh, it's like, as we discharge our members into Trevor Reese jones <laughs> give them AIDS, Lord of Landmines, and they... Almost the whole thing was broadcast. Mm. Only the last bit was says, and faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> and it was faded down, and the first episode was faded up. Oh, okay. It had apparently been playing in parallel. Wow. So the rest of the hour was just the first episode of the series again. And it was never... It actually... That's not true. It was... It did become the first episode of the second series, mm. but that section was cut. Hmm. 
So I think overall it's a pretty spooky thriller. As long as you don't think about it, you just have to accept what you're looking at. Yeah. Which kind of goes against my feelings about movies a lot of the time is that I like it when you can just reach down and there's more underneath mm. but here no it's just surface don't think about this just accept what you're seeing and don't ask questions and the problem with that is that's the exact opposite of Nigel Neal's entire philosophy <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that's unfortunate but I mean it's a, it's a fair enough point actually that if you're if you're analysing something and taking it apart to work out why you like it it is perfectly possible to realise that oh I like this Despite the fact because that it's of the, complete rubbish. Yeah, because of the stuff on top. Yeah. It's not a it's not a good movie, really. I mean I wouldn't have said that before I started researching it and watching no. it, taking notes. But I have to admit it's not a good movie. Inter- but it doesn't mean it's not entertaining, because no. it is entertaining and it's atmospheric, it's very well directed, it's generally quite well acted. Dan O'Hurley is terrific, mm, yeah. he is, makes a fantastic villain. He never shouts, he never raises his voice. It's all power and control through calmness and quiet. And he's supremely confident all the way through it. Even at the end where he gives this little golf yes. clap. Yeah. Oh, what you've done very well in, in this. But you're not really going to defeat me. There's no way that you can actually defeat me. Mm. I think that's the nice... Again, it's, it's that thing that, that parts of the film only sort of make sense in retrospect. And that is... At the time, you think he's a pl- oh well done. You've thwarted my plans, and then of course you get to the end, and it's like he's gone oh well done. You think you've thwarted my plans, but actually you haven't. Mm. It's almost sarcastic. Mm. So you're you're unconvinced that a Halloween anthology series as a, as a run of movies would work. I was going to say that I'm not convinced that the idea of doing here's a film. Oh now here's another random film. But then Star Wars Rogue One. Is yeah. an anthology film, but the difference there is that it's within an existing universe. It's another story within. Yeah. It's like the various Star Trek series; they're different stories mm. looking at a different aspect of this pre-existing world. Or even like the the Quatermass films, I guess, and stuff, where it's you know it's it's. But they're always with the same lead character. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. That is that. Or that, Torchwood, the Doctor Who spin-off. Mm. You could have spin-offs, and that could work because Rogue One is more of a spin-off than an mm. anthology. I think it's difficult to do anthologies in movies when it's an ongoing series. You can do it within one movie, as the Twilight Zone the movie did. I know there's been a an anthology movie called Trick or Treat, which is a Halloween-based anthology okay. of horror stories. But based on this, I I honestly don't think it works as a series. Although having said that, you can find I can think of examples of other films that, with a bit of tweaking, could have worked as part of the ha- Gremlins, for example. Yeah, could have worked as part of the Halloween franchise. Yeah, almost a, a lot of horror films actually, or, or would have worked with a little bit of tweaking. So yeah, you. And the funny thing is, it seems to work all right on television with American mm. Horror Story. Yeah, where each series is apparently a completely discrete story. Yeah. Or even, I think they did a series called Friday the 13th, which... That was a regular series. Oh, was it? Okay. It had almost nothing to do with the original movie. No, no, that's right, yeah. I think that the original Halloween, Halloween 1 and 2, would work as a limited series in their own right. You Mm. could expand a lot and make them into like an 8 or 10 part saga. And then you could have subsequent series that would do other Halloween-based stories. But the rules are different for television. Yes, yeah. 
And although I would recommend Halloween 3 as sort of a late-night spook story with a few scary images and thrilling moments and a, a nice moody atmosphere, I wouldn't recommend it as anything else. <laughs> Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on iTunes, with almost two dozen episodes available, so please subscribe, download and review, while you are still you. But until next time, remember, you'll never believe how we did it. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnos Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Podnose.